A Platoon of Misery is presented by Eric Hooks. Too young to drown and drink. Every country's got its national and seasonal dishes. My own isn't an exception. Every New Year's Eve, good fish is, in my opinion, tribulated, and I'll never understand it. We boil cod. How someone ever came up with the idea that it should be fantastic to turn this palatable meat with a perfect consistency into blubber is a mystery to me. The price of cod goes sky high before the end of the year and everybody is trying to find cod at the lowest prices. That's why, when I was in my early teens, I was invited out on the boat to fish cod in the days between Christmas and New Year. My friend's parents had one of those boats that looked like a summer cottage with a keel underneath. There was nearly no wind that day, but it was bitterly cold, and we were dressed like Arctic explorers when we left the small harbour. We sat outside, in the back of the boat, dragging our lures. Maybe there was a sea trout around. Inside, with the heating on behind the rudder, stood my friend's grandfather with his wife. My friend's grandmother close by, taking care of a constant flow of coffee down into our captain's cup. He had his binoculars at hand and a chart of the area that we were going to on a desk behind him. Cod, at that time of year, is found in the deep holes, often far out. As we sailed, my friend and I were discussing the chance of hooking up with a huge female cod full of roe. We imagined the struggle and fight getting it up from the deep water. Since we were not going to fish with rods and just have the line in hand, we checked that we had our gloves ready because we knew that a cod that size would make the line make deep cuts in our hands. On our way heading north, we were going to pass the mouth of three rivers. The first one was easy to see, but not because it was big. In those days, there were no protected areas at the river mouths. The result was that the trout had to pass a labyrinth of nets to begin their honeymoon in the river. It's a miracle that some of them actually did. We could see all the nets with poles sticking up as we got closer. In the middle of the maze was a small boat, a classic well boat with a small wheelhouse. On the deck of it was somebody waving with both of his arms. My friend's grandfather, our captain, picked up his binoculars and pointed them in the direction of the boat. After a while, he said a lot of words that I will not repeat. His wife stared at him with a look on her face that showed no doubt about her opinion of that language. Our eyeballs were still focused on his lips when the next words came. It's a boy on the boat, and there's a man hanging in the water, clinging to the railing on the outside of it. He handed the binoculars to my friend. Have a look for yourself. Watching my friend's body language, I could see how he first stiffened, and then his mouth opened, gradually. The binoculars were passed to me with shaking hands. As I zoomed in on the scene, I could see a boy of our age standing on the boat, still waving with both of his arms. His face was white as newly washed linen, 
and spelled only one word, panic. The man hanging on the side of the boat had his back turned and I couldn't figure out why he was there. Our captain came with the answer right after the question had popped up in my head. He can't get up. And then our captain turned into our commanding officer. Okay, boys, we got to do something. He'll freeze and drown before any other help arrives. Then he looked at us like a sergeant at his recruits. We can't sail in there. There's way too many nets and we'll end up getting stuck with one of them in the screw. Pointing at the small dinghy at the back of the boat, the first order came. Get that one in the water. We ran down there and did as he said. Second order. You two got to do it. My right leg is too stiff. I can't get down in it. He examined us and mumbled that it was good that we were already dressed in life jackets. Okay, boys. We nearly saluted him when his voice got an even more serious tone. You have to row to the boat and drag the man on board. Take this rope. He tied one end to our boat and gave the other end to my friend. We have to tow them all the way to the harbour. He's way too heavy to lift over here. Our commanding officer examined us again. I have later thought that he was trembling inside because we were way too young to do what we were going to do, but he didn't show it. Get on board the dinghy. We climbed down, I took the oars, and my friend was holding all the rope. Our commanding officer lowered his voice, looking straight into our eyes. Remember, boys, you are more important than him. I'm pretty sure that we didn't understand what he meant, and I'm not sure either that we would have been able to follow his order. I started rowing, and my friend was distributing the rope behind us. It was only a little more than a hundred yards, but it felt like crossing the Atlantic Ocean. When we arrived and climbed on board the small vessel, it only took a short moment to realise that the boy was no help at all. He was in total shock, not crying, but his whole body was one big spasm of trepidation. Only the sight of the man with his hands on the railing. They were blue from the cold, and it looked like they could lose their grip at any moment. As our eyes crept over the railing, we were hit by a shock that made us shiver all over. It wasn't the fact that he was in the very cold water or that his face was totally blue. It was his eyes. They were bulging out, staring at us with so much fear that I can still see them in front of me. Many years later, I understood that it was the fear of death, but we were still too young to understand the concept of dying. First, we tied the rope to the boat and then started to try to lift the man up. Lifting is not the right word. He was unable to help himself, hit by hypothermia as he was. We dragged, pulled and towed like it was the last thing we would ever do. Our faces turned red from the enormous effort and our hands got blue of cold by just touching him. At last, the heavy burden slid over the railing and bumped down on the deck like a big sack of potatoes. 
he was facing down and we turned him around and looked at those eyes again. His lips were moving a bit, but not a sound passed them. My friend signalled to his grandfather that he could start towing. When the vessels were laying side by side, we were handed a big pile of carpets and we covered the man with them. Then we were ordered to climb back to our boat. The boy wanted to stay with his father. We couldn't persuade him to get on board and down in the warm cabin. My friend's grandmother placed us on a bench. We were shaking and halfway crying from exhaustion. She planted two small glasses in front of us and produced a bottle from a drawer. You are too young for this, but it's necessary, she mumbled and poured the liquid. The last order we heard that day was, drink it. With our throats burning from the strong alcohol, we could hear our captain call for help on the radio. It was short, exact sentences without any kind of nonsense or babbling. My friend's grandmother looked at the bottle and she was about to pour another drink for us when she stopped herself. One must be enough, she muttered, and only poured one for herself and her husband. In the harbour there were loads of people and an ambulance. The man was lifted into it and his son sat beside him in the back of the ambulance that speeded away with the screaming siren on. The next weekend, the fish salesman from the small harbour came by our house as he did every Saturday. My mum was given a lot of fish for free. Then he turned around, took my hand that disappeared into his massive fist and laid the other one on my head. We just stood there for a while. The Platoon of Misery is read by Patrick Johnson, written and produced by Sons Garvey.